Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Keir Starmer and this is even more enjoyable than you will have imagined. It is absolutely fantastic and it is emotional, engrossing, funny, the lot. Before I come on to that in more detail, just to let you know, guests for future shows, the next show on Monday the 6th of March, my guest is Eddie Izzard. When I grew up, Eddie was arguably the greatest comedian on the planet and Dressed to Kill is still one of the finest live comedy shows I think ever made. Uh, Eddie obviously is also a prominent Labour Party campaigner and I think is still looking to get selected for a parliamentary seat at the next election. So may well be an MP in the coming years. That will be a fascinating and unique night. On the 20th of March, my guest is Krishnan Guru Murthy, um, one of the most talented news broadcasters and one of the funniest news broadcasters in the country. And obviously Channel 4 News really operates in its own world. It's a republic, really. It's very different to other broadcast news in this country. And the 3rd of April, my guest is Ruth Davidson. I mean, what an amazing guest to have uh, with everything that's happening in Scottish politics, with the changes happening at the top of the SNP. We'll have a new First Minister in a few weeks. And Ruth obviously led... The Scottish Conservatives, really, to their high point, was was crucial to um, recovering and, and effectively rebranding the Tories in Scotland. On the 17th of April, I'm about to be announce who that guest is. On the 22nd of May, my guest is David Blunkett, obviously one of the biggest beasts, really, in Labour history, but such a dominant figure in those new Labour years primarily really as Home Secretary, as I remember, but obviously started off her education and, and held so many other briefs uh, and is still so absolutely sharp. So his his take, 22nd of May, obviously not long after the, what will it be then, the 26th anniversary of Labour winning in 1997. So a, an amazing time to be talking to him. Uh, more guests due to be announced. Follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford, because they're always announced. The moment they're booked, I put them on there straight away and then they're announced here. And you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And um, if you're a politician, if you want to come on, if you work for a politician or a former politician or someone that you think may would would be a great guest. Uh, and of course, the, the brief is broad about Gary Neville on here and, and various other people uh, then do get in touch. So on to today's guest, Keir Starmer. It's the third time he's been on the show and he never disappoints. And this is absolutely engrossing. And there are times in this that are very emotional, that are highly personal that I don't think I've heard him say elsewhere. There's also some really funny stories about focus groups, what his kids say to him, going to the football, his relationship with Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and how they all differed, Um, his conversation on the phone with Jeremy Corbyn after the Equalities and Human Rights Commission initial report. There's just so much in this. This is a, a deep and rich and engrossing interview. So I will not prattle on anymore and um, as always of course when the show is recorded live at the duchess theater uh i start with a bit of stand-up about another packed fortnight in british politics uh 
Uh, and of course, what a fortnight it's been in politics. So much political change, so many amazing political events, including uh, Volodymyr Zelensky addressing uh, the Houses of Parliament last week. You may have seen it in Westminster Hall. Oh. <laughs> Tepid support for Zelensky. More of a Putin crowd, is it? Wow. I didn't expect the hard left here tonight, but welcome. Uh, amazing footage on the day. It makes you very emotional that we see Zelensky and his fatigues and his dress in Parliament. You may have seen, actually, uh, the footage of when he's talking to Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. And Dominic Raab is stood. <laughs> eyeballing Keir Starmer. I mean, he looked like he was either going to smack him or like he was coming up on a pill. <laughs> Just sort of stood there, like, gurning, looking at... <laughs> Fucking hell, the Ukrainian national anthem sounds amazing. <laughs> I feel really good. I don't feel like bullying anyone. This is amazing. <laughs> and Zelensky, obviously, before Zelensky, I don't know if you watched it live, it's an amazing bit of telling. Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, is the person who introduces him. And he goes fully, like, local on it. He goes, I first met Vladimir Zelensky back in 2022, and our friendship has blossomed ever since then. He was the first head of state that ever I had visit as Speaker of the House, and we had a lovely afternoon of laughter over tea and, of course, Charlie cakes. Now, mate, this guy's fighting a war against a fascist on his eastern border. What the fuck are you? He's, just stood... He's come to ask for air support. Don't, like, abuse the privilege. Do you remember when we had Charlie cakes? Wasn't that a lovely time? Imagine Hoyle at different moments in history. I'll never forget the first time I met Charles de Gaulle, and uh, we enjoyed a lovely suet pudding, and... Uh, well, that was after, of course, they gave Roosevelt liver and onions for the first time. And uh, he said it was fucking disgusting. Uh, good mates ever since. But then Zelensky takes over and gives this uh, amazing, amazing speech. But there's a bit in it where you can see on the cutaway shots, Boris Johnson is there and he's trying to get his way to the front. And he's got his hair, his back combed more than it's ever been. You sort of see him knock it. It's one of the most tragic things. And then Zelensky spots him and goes, Boris... Oh, it's not my finest, right? <laughs> you united the world when it seemed absolutely impossible. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, it basically went from like a plea for air support into like an audience with Vladimir Zelensky, just dropping anecdotes about different celebrities in the crowd. Great to see my two friends, Mickey Flanagan and Gloria Hannaford. <laughs> hey, Mickey, I'm finally out, out. <laughs> Great to be here. But there's a bit in it where he's talking, he goes, I remember the English tea and Charlie Gates. <laughs> this is fucking... What has this been? And he's there, like, in his fatigues, like, ashen-faced from the horrors of war. And he goes, last time I came here, you took me to cabinet war rooms. And I sat in Winston Churchill's armchair. You're like, you took him on, like, a tourist trip of London. <laughs> we went on London Eye and I felt sick. <laughs> I went to Shrek's Adventure. I still do not understand it as a tourist destination, but I did enjoy Madame Tussauds and still have the photos I had with the waxworks of Barbara Windsor and Gaza. <laughs> Abuse this man's time by hoying him round tourists. I mean, it's, he then introduces himself to a load of different MPs. That's a good job Lee Anderson wasn't at the front. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing here? You got a passport or what? But Sunak, of course, Sunak got to have a joint press conference with Vladimir Zelensky. And this is the problem with Sunak. A lot of his behaviour is completely, actually, inappropriate. When you watch him often enough, 
He does a joint press conference like an aircraft hangar. Zelensky's here specifically to ask for air support to help him fight a fascist on his eastern border. And Sunak turns up... <laughs> Zelensky's there, army fatigues, eyes sunken from the horrors of war. Sunak, like nice ice-white collar, a sort of Berghaus top, a couple shit-eating grin across his face. Like, mate, don't... You can't... Don't smile at a time like this. Just do the kind of ashen face wall. Yeah, great to have Vladimir here. Vladimir, great to have you with us. He looked like... Vladimir's here for air support. Rishi looked like he was going to launch the new iPad. <laughs> what are you doing? We're here today to launch the new iPad X that has nine gigs of memory and a new lithium-ion battery with three weeks of battery life. I'll hand over to Vladimir. We need planes. <laughs> and he always says that. Talking of planes actually does work. Does work in flight mode, so it's the perfect tablet for a transatlantic flight. You know what? The way he was talking about planes, because he's just there like, I need planes. He's like, yeah, well, let's talk about other things. He was basically treating him like he was a contestant on Dragon's Den. Look, Vladimir, I think you've pitched really well. Um, look, I've got a lot of respect for what you're doing, and I think you've done really well to build it in the way that you have, given the time frame. And look, your pitch, it hit me right in the feels. But look, I think... Um, I don't think... You, I think this is a solution in search of a problem, and I think you can actually fight Putin with existing stock, and I would maybe look to do that over the medium term. And no, look, no, I'm not going to get involved with Tuka. No, no, no. Look, I know... Well, he doesn't understand modern warfare. I'm not getting involved with Tuka. No, I know he can promise you central London office space, but I just don't think he understands how to use lethal force. And for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> so patronising the way he talks to him. Uh, of course, it's not just um, Rishi Sunak dealing with Ukraine. He's in Northern Ireland. He's been in Northern Ireland all week trying to solve the problems of the Northern Ireland Protocol. You're like, if his shtick goes down badly in England... Imagine what he's like in Northern Ireland. <laughs> trying to talk to Sinn Féin and the DUP. And look, I totally get the troubles. I mean, you know, I've had troubles in my life, you know? I... Yeah. I went to Saint-Tropez and couldn't get valet parking. It was a bloody night. No, you're right, Belfast is a lot colder than London. If I lived here, I'd wear a balaclava all the time. Yeah, I just... Totally get it. My God. Of course, it's not just... Uh, the Tory party that has issues with some of its own ranks. The Labour Party uh, has had some issues with some of its MPs. Uh, Jared O'Mara, uh, one of the MPs in Sheffield, uh, has been convicted of trying to extort £24,000 from the taxpayer to fund his cocaine habit. He was on five grams a day. I mean, there must have been a period of time where actually he was a highly effective MP. <laughs> Staring through casework. Fucking hell, he's effective, isn't he? I mean, he's aggressive, but he gets stuff done. <laughs> Imagine him in the House of Commons. Uh, yes, uh, no, no, no. I know the Honourable Member wants to talk about Colombian export policy. But I just remind him to do it in parliamentary language. You fucking talk to me, you muck. <laughs> Look like a fucking... I got two things in my life. I got my word and my balls, and I don't break any of them, you fucking cocksucking motherfucker. <laughs> I actually remember the first time I, I met Mr Montana, we, uh, we bonded over seven grams of Colombian yak. And, uh, it was a lovely time, it, it certainly was. It'd be good to make a film. I'm watching a film out at the moment called Cocaine Bear. I don't know if you've seen this about a bear that eats a lot. You should make a po political version of it. Cocaine Blair. <laughs> Where, Tony Blair... Well, look, I, look, what you have to remember, actually, is at the time, yes, I consumed a duffel bag's worth of cocaine, <laughs> Look, but you have to put it in the context of the time. 
given the circumstances, well, it's very easy now to say, of course, it turned out badly, but I think at the time, given the intelligence I had and the information and the context, of course I'd do it again. <laughs> there we are. And of course, tonight's guest, Keir Starmer, has had issues uh, with his own party, but the Equalities and Human Rights Commission is no longer monitoring the Labour Party for racial hate, which is a phrase none of us should ever have had to say. <laughs> that dark time is over. And uh, Keir Starmer gave a, a press conference last week that you may have seen, and uh, a couple of uh, amazing moments in it. There's a bit where he says, Jeremy Corbyn will not be a Labour candidate at the next election. Now... I mean, it's amazing that any leader of a mainstream... but No other Labour leader in history has had to do that. Ed Miliband never had to get up, give a press conference, go, do, 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 look. <laughs> Gordon Brown, right, is not fit to be a Labour candidate. No, no, The comments he made about the Indian community were deeply offensive. He didn't need to do the accent. <laughs> but he, uh, he also said something else. He said... Uh, th th what's fascinating about watching Keir Starmer is uh, he has... He channels uh, anger and aggression and dismay very well. That very delivery that he's got. And he, when he's annoyed, actually, there's a, an air of menace about him. And he said to the Labour, he said, for the people who hold anti-Semitic views of the Labour Party, the door is open. You are free to leave. And like, there's almost an element of brick-top Tony about the, the sort of clenched teeth. The door is open. If you've got the bollocks to walk through it, I'll be waiting for you on the other side of my petty region. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's also... Uh, Labour have announced another policy. Labour now, obviously, parties now, they sense that an election will be in the next two years. Policy is starting to come out of all our major parties now. And the Labour Party has announced a crackdown on fly-tipping and people who offend and fly-tip will be told to tidy it up. <laughs> Imagine if Keir went door to door with this, because I think he genuinely would make you mend your ways. Look at the mess you've made of them. <laughs> well, I know you don't want a toaster anymore, but neither does the rest of the public. <laughs> I would have any low-level antisocial behaviour, I'd have him right on noise pollution. It's a bloody racket, is what it is. It's not even good music. Turn it down. I've just seen you let your dog do that all over the pavement. It's illegal to walk up. It doesn't matter where I watched you from. I saw you do it. <laughs> but he, uh, he obviously went to, uh, went to meet uh, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine. And I don't know if you saw any of the footage of, of Keir Starmer and Vladimir Zelensky, but the thing that really struck me on the BBC News is that Keir Starmer is there with his shirt and tie, but also a North Face coat on. With very sort of prominent North Face... And I don't think I've ever seen a politician... <laughs> do product placement before. <laughs> sort of made it look like he was going to go, well, I've look, it, the conditions here are terrible. The, the war is obviously appalling. It's freezing, but actually we've been able to move around at will thanks to my North Face jacket, which... <laughs> thanks to Himalayan insulation technology. Actually, if you buy it now, you get 30% off a, a crew neck fleece. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, what a special night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming. Tonight's guest has already done the show two times before. The first time he was Shadow Brexit Secretary, and the second time was at the Garrick Theatre. Some of you might have been there when it was the, one of the first, if not the first, public outing he'd had since becoming Labour leader. Even since that show at the Garrick, so much has changed. And you can feel now a mood in the country and in the Labour Party around tonight's guest, where you can, the polling says it and everything else. 
He is on the verge of becoming the next Prime Minister, but there is a long way to go. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, potentially, well, unless the Tories knife another one, please welcome Keir Starmer! Thank you. Thank you. Is that a better reception than you get at Labour conference? Uh, this is far better than that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very good to... Well, I can't actually see you, but it's really nice. I think last time we had just a third of the audience or something, so... Only because of Covid. <laughs> <laughs> Ticket sales have been very healthy across the run. Um, so, uh, first things first. Did you spot Dominic Raab looking at you like that? <laughs> I didn't spot it, but when I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Um, I showed it to my wife and just thought, this is really weird. You know, his, his eyes, the way he's looking at me. I mean, what is this? Um, but I didn't spot it at the time, but it was really, really interesting. It's, I, I had so many views of it as well. Something like a million people watched it or something. And do you... When you watch that back, do you just think, oh, he's always like that? Or do you think <laughs> he could have punched me? Or... Well, the thing about Rob is... When I'm at the dispatch box doing PMQs, if I say anything about him being a bully, because he's sitting next to the Prime Minister usually, he sort of leans forward, <laughs> puts, his, puts his neck out, and then either side there's these bulging veins. <laughs> so you say one word wrong. <laughs> so if he's trying to give the impression of the relaxed guy that you got it all wrong, <laughs> it's a very odd way of doing it. But uh, I didn't see it that day, thankfully. It was a... Obviously, an amazing event, Zelensky uh, ad- addressing Parliament, and I know you've been to Ukraine to see him as well, but another thing I noticed on that was when Zelensky comes off stage, he chats to Rishi Sunak for a bit, but he moves, pr- he moves on pretty fast, and then he has a very long chat with you. Yeah. Do you think you've made more of a connection with him than the Prime Minister has? <laughs> I don't know. I'm Prime Minister and connections not particularly strong uh, across the country. But, it, I mean, it, it was, in all seriousness... Um, <laughs> It was, it was really an amazing, amazing moment. A lot of you will have probably seen it. This is Westminster Hall. That is the big hall in Parliament, both Houses of Parliament, um, an address from President Zelensky. I mean, a lot of people have made speeches in that hall which are really historic, and this was another one of them. Um, and the, that was only a second trip out of Ukraine since the conflict started, which um, on Friday will be a year. And the fact he came to the UK and gave that speech was really, really incredible. And... Um, it was a really important moment, I think, for us to remember. Um, and then obviously went back out and saw him last week. And what does he say to you in a moment like that where it's, it's, it's quite chaotic, there's a lot of cameras on, what's he saying to you the moment he comes off stage after a speech like that? Uh, the thing we were discussing, and it's the same thing as I discussed with him last week when I went over to Ukraine, was um, that, one, the unity of support here, uh, political unity, is real. Um, and whatever else we've fallen out with the government about, I've never, ever divided on Ukraine, because that's what Putin wants. And, I, and he knows, and I know, there's going to be an election next year. Um, and I wanted to say to him, there will be no change of position with an incoming Labour government. He knew there was going to be an election, and so he wanted that reassurance. So we were talking about that. Obviously, his main pitch was, you know, I need planes. <laughs> he made that pretty, uh, pretty obvious. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your tea. Uh, but I need, I need lovely sandwiches, but I need planes. And would a Labour government 
give him the planes. Well, you're going to try and get me to do what I said I wouldn't do, which is to divide with the government on this. Um, look, I mean, he's got a very, very powerful case for all of the support that he needs. Um, and, you know, it does, as the Prime Minister said, have to be part of the conversation. Uh, but we've got to do it in lockstep with NATO. Um, and um, also, there are practical issues that need to be borne in mind. It takes quite a while to train people on, on those planes. Those planes need um, sort of ground uh, control if they're really going to work. It's not, there's no way you can have a plane here that could be in Ukraine next week and operational in any event. But look, should it be part of the conversation? Absolutely. And we will stand with the government on this, by the way. So, you know, again, there will not be a divide on that. So when you talk about the government getting it right in Ukraine, what you're basically saying is Boris got all the big calls right. (laughs) (laughs) Trash the economy. Public services don't work. Everyone is on strike. He really did a brilliant job with our country, didn't he? You know, ask yourself the question. After 13 years, can you think of one thing that is better now than it was in 2010 when they took over. Is the economy better? Is your wages better? Are public services better? Arsenal are. Arsenal are better. <laughs> Long may that last. <laughs> Nottingham Forest are as well. Nottingham Forest, yeah. Well, um, uh, yeah, on Saturday, Forest did a real favour for us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we did it for ourselves. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was nice that there was a positive side effect. Um, so you've obviously faced a few Tory leaders now, some for uh, days, some for months. <laughs> of the three that you faced... We wasted a lot of time in the summer thinking, how are we going to... So with Liz Trust, we were sort of going through... I said, look, show me videos of what she's like in the chamber. You know, how's this going to go? Did a loads of study. That was a waste of time, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and he had three Prime Minister's questions with her and she was gone. We actually, to be fair, she was... Because Johnson and I really loathed each other, as was obvious... Um, we really never spoke behind the, sp- the scenes very much. But she did reach out in the early days, saying we should have a one-to-one meeting, you know, dollar. but by the time we got it in the diary, she was already gone. <laughs> 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 and, it, I mean, it's obvious. I know different political rivals, you know, there's, a, there's relationships exist according to the personalities and the characters of those individuals, not necessarily the political differences. So... Just on Boris Johnson, it was obvious that there was a... Le- I mean, he, could, he was in... A, I saw him on Nadine Dorries' Talks TV show. Oh, that was a tough interview, wasn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Almost you know, as this. The, the gruelling interview. <laughs> I think he caught in that. He said, oh, you... So, uh, crash a Rooney snooze fest, the human bollard. Uh, when he... It's like he's in the room. When he, when he does... Um, when he says stuff like that about you, does it hurt or is it just so ludicrous? That no, you see, it, it doesn't matter. One, because I really couldn't give a toss. Um, um, and, and um, you know, and I really loathed him. Everything, he, he didn't stand for anything. He had no principles, no integrity. He lied through his teeth. And he brings everybody down with him. Is there anybody who's had any relationship with Johnson you know, in any sense of the word, um, who hasn't ended up in the gutter. Um, and it takes a while. But the other reason it bounces off me is, um, obviously, when we're preparing for Prime Minister's questions, we've got a session on um, a Wednesday morning where I go through the team, you know, what are we going to say? How's he going to come back at us? And then one of the team is um, nominated to sort of do the um, opposition. And when it was Johnson... Uh, the guy who does it, it was just like the brilliant warning because he's now been given licence to insult me. 
<laughs> and to get applauded. So he, he sort of gives it to you, lily liver, jelly wobbling, lily <laughs> And so by the, by the time Johnson... So I've been done over by a member of my own staff so badly <laughs> for PMQs that by the time we get to Johnson, there's nothing left for me to be at all worried about. And now, now you've got Rishi Sunak. So that dynamic, I imagine, is different to the one with Johnson. Yeah, it is. Um, and... You know, my personal relationship with him is much better. He phoned me the day he became Prime Minister, gave me his personal number, and we said we would you know, work together on um, things like Ukraine, on uh, if there was a terrorist incident, God forbid, or security issues. Uh, but that obviously we would you know, robustly um, argue with each other on everything else. So it is a different relationship, um, and a different relationship across the dispatch box. And did Liz Truss or Boris Johnson give you their personal number? No. I think, in fairness, I think Liz Trust probably would have done. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think well, there was a story about her mobile phone, wasn't there? <laughs> and have, have you texted him yet? You said, hey, this is Keir. <laughs> no, no. It's no. my number. So you're not WhatsApp. Oh, sorry, to... yeah, no, I did to give him my number, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. And did he, like, does he use emojis? <laughs> no, we we're not texting about the Southampton Arsenal sports. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, he's having a terrible time in every regard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you rate him as an opponent? Do you, do you find him more formidable than you thought, or what, what are his difficulties? I think... Um, when I say he's weak, I think he is weak. Um, I think he's very one-dimensional. Yes. I think he's insubstantial. <laughs> <laughs> One guy with a really deep voice. And... He's, he's insubstantial, but his main problem is that... Because he didn't win his leadership race, he avoided it, he hasn't got a mandate. Um, and therefore, he hasn't got the strength. I mean, you don't have Swella Braverman in your cabinet, on merit. Um, <laughs> uh, so, he's, he's, he's the things he has to do to try to stay in the position he's in, you know. Um, and every time there's been a threatened rebellion, he's backed down. And so, he doesn't have... You know, the one thing you get if you win the leadership of your party is the right to say, I've won the leadership, but I'm, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it, and this is what I'm saying we're going to do with the party, and we're going to do it. And he doesn't have the ability to do that because he hasn't got a mandate. And that's, I think, the central weakness for him. When I mean, he does also have... A, I mean, there, there's a, there is a genuine... There's a weakness problem, but there's a real out-of-touch problem. When you sort of fill up somebody else's car at a, at a petrol station and then can't pay for it because he's never actually done this before. Um, or, or you go to a homeless shelter uh, over Christmas and somebody comes up for their meal and says, oh, are you in business? <laughs> no, I'm homeless. <laughs> oh, finance. <laughs> and a real, there is a real out-of-touch issue there. But is there a danger that, given the issues that Labour's had, that some of that can look like class war? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I've, I've not attacked him for being rich. Um, and I don't think I would attack him for being rich. Um, I do think everybody should pay their taxes. That's a different <laughs> issue. Um, but not for being rich. So I, there's not a class war issue to it at all. Um, and, you know, there are many rich and successful people in the Labour Party, in the, um, you know, particularly... Um, some of our politicians who've gone on to do other things, um, and people who support the Labour Party. There's no issue on that. Um, but you do, you do have to know um, what people are going through. In a cost-of-living crisis, I mean, it's, people are really anxious. Can I pay my bills? Um, it's the one thing everybody wants to talk about. What am I going to cut down on? The Knowing that people are going into the supermarket, picking up food 
looking at the price and putting them back down again. Things they didn't do. You have to know that's going on. You have to know what that feels like. You know, pensioners who, um, during the winter, telling me, I don't get out of bed until midday so I can save on the, on the heating. You have to understand that. Um, and, you know, that is where I have got an advantage over him. You know, when I was growing up, we were working class. We didn't have a lot of money. And our phone was cut off. Um, and that was for real. We had to decide if um, the bills that are coming in, which one are we going to give up? Well, we'll give up the phone. It'll be cut off. Um, and, you know, that's, there's an anxiety in that, if you're in a family that has to make those decisions. There's a, there's a sort of shame, because these are bills that you used to be able to pay, and now you can't. You have to understand, that's what people are going through at the moment um, across the whole country. And I just don't think he gets it. Um, and that is a problem, because people can tell if you don't know what it's like to live the life that they're living. And when you're a child and, and you're growing up in a pubadashtami and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the phone gets cut off, do you remember, that, do you remember your mum and dad having that conversation? Yeah, they had a conversation about what was going to go. And it, was, and it wasn't once it was cut off, it happened on a number of occasions. And that was it, by the way, then. There were no mobiles, there was no way around this. <laughs> you were cut off for good. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, can we make ends meet? And what are we going to have to do if we can't? And as a family, did they involve you in that conversation? Not a lot. I mean, my mum and dad were um, old-fashioned in the sense that they didn't involve the kids in that kind of conversation. So I knew what was going on, but we weren't asked for our views or anything like that. And would that have been typical? When you were going to school or the kids you were playing with on the street, was that happening to everyone or was that just your family? It varied. Um, and it wasn't something you talked about. <laughs> you know, if, if things like that are going on in your life, you don't talk about it. You just get on with it. Um, so I didn't discuss these sorts of things at school or anything like that. I think shame around your economic circumstance is actually a big deal. And it's obviously a huge deal at the moment, but I think it can be really formative for people and how they see the world. And I just wonder if... had you, Small things, like had your phone not been cut off, would you be Labour or not? I... <laughs> well, it was, that, that, that was it. Phone was cut off, and I went and joined the Labour Party. That was it. <laughs> but there are there are there are formative things when you're growing up, which, if I'm honest, I didn't know at the time were formative. Um, it's only as I've sort of looked back, um, and one of the most powerful for me was the fact that my dad worked in a factory all his life um, on the shop floor, um, working with his hands. He was a toolmaker, skilled. Um, but because he worked in a factory, people looked down on him. And he, Which people? He, 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 so, to give an example, um, I remember when they used to have people round, etc., etc., and there'd be the, the conversation that always happens when people get together. What do you do for a living? So I say, well, I'm, I'm a solicitor, or um, I work for the local authority, or whatever. Um, my dad would say, I work in a factory. And the conversation would just stop, because people didn't quite know what to say. Um, and he dreaded, you know, now I look back on it, he dreaded that moment because he felt disrespected that people didn't... I mean, to be a toolmaker is a highly skilled job. Um, and he was very proud of it and really good at what he did. Um, he did things other people couldn't do, but because he worked in a factory, he felt disrespected. And as a result of that, he sort of put a distance between him and other people. He didn't want that conversation. And, that's what, and that has really, really stayed with me, that basic sense that you have to respect people um, and 
understand what dignity is. And so even now, when um, with Rachel Reeves discussing economic growth and where we're going with the country, you know, our economy is in a real mess because they really have screwed it up big time. Um, but the question is, if you're going to grow the economy, if you're going to have an economy that's flourishing, how are you going to do that? And there are, there are a number of ways. You could say London and the South East can do the heavy lifting and then we can redistribute to the rest of the country. Wrong. Because if you don't respect people across the whole of the country, everybody's entitled to a decent job, a skilled job, um, then you're not going to grow the economy in the right way. So it is deep down in me. I mean, some people pretend, because I don't think it really happens, that they realised all this at the time. It's only when I look back that I've got a real appreciation of how some of those things... But that in particular, respecting people, um, particularly people who are skilled but didn't go the university route. Or whatever. I was the first in my family to go to university, so there was this great thing of, you know, Kia's gone to university. But actually, um, there was my dad, just as skilled in what he was doing, but not respected. And also, it, it, people aren't defined by what they do for a living. He's a dad. He had interests. Yeah. He, he, you, you can't just judge people based on how they pay the bills. No, and I'm not judged by what I do for a living by my children. It's <laughs> a very good thing. <laughs> they're, they're my worst critics. Um, so, uh, uh, just two examples of that. So, um, this is a fantastic conversation. It was a couple of years ago with our little girl, who's now 12, was about 10 at the time. And it was a, it was a slow motion car crash. Uh, which was her saying, you know, what time are you going to be home tonight, Daddy? What are you doing? I said, oh, I'll be home late. What are you doing? Oh, I'm going um, to um, a, a fundraising dinner. Oh, uh, what's that? I said, it's a dinner where people pay money to hear someone speak. She said, who's speaking? <laughs> and I said, me. And she said, I kid you not, why would anyone pay to hear you speak? <laughs> and it was, it, now, now she's 12, she'd probably do that on a sort of mischievous way, but this was the genuine sort of incredulity of, of a 10-year-old girl. And the other one, just to bear out how little regard they have for me, um, our, our boy is 14, he's, our little boy is he's taller than me, he's six foot tall. Um, and uh, at the tail end of last year, I got the um, Spectator Parliamentarian of the Year Award, which is a big deal. And, you know, very proudly arrived home with the, uh, the certificate um, in a, a, a frame. And our boy is laying on the settee, <laughs> barely looks up. I said, he says, what's that? So I passed it to him. And he passed it back and goes, how did you blag that then? <laughs> and carries on watching the television. <laughs> so what I do for a living doesn't get me any brownie points in our house, I can tell you. But, I mean, there must be part of it. They must be very proud of you. Is there an element as well where they go, oh, Dad, this is just like a nightmare? Or Yeah, why don't you get a decent job? <laughs> <laughs> Does it take a toll on family life? Yeah. And that is the hardest part, in all seriousness. Um, it's among the reasons we've never named our children in public. I've never done any publicity photos um, with them. Um, and it's going to be really hard, but to try to protect them um, as best we can. And... You know, it is really hard because, you know, when the going is tough, there are a lot of press outside your house. Um, when we had the um, Durham Beergate thing, we had, I don't know, 20 journalists outside the house all of the time. Now, we've got a London house with a, I don't know, um, seven or eight yard front um, garden. You posh bastard. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but for, for my little girl, she opens her bedroom, um, you know, curtains and there's all these people outside and it's horrible. Um, and... That is hard for them. I do really worry 
um, about them. Um, but equally, my wife, we, again, she stays out of the limelight and gets on with her job. <laughs> She's very streetwise. <laughs> in a way, they must be going, Dad, I can't wait to be in number 10 because then there's like a gate at the bottom. Uh, <laughs> so, again, one last anecdote from our little girl. <laughs> she, she's very sparky. She said, she said to me, um, this must be about a year ago, um, if you win the election, will you move to Downing Street? I said, uh, yeah. And she said, just to let you know, I'm not coming. <laughs> She's got a mate around the corner, her sort of bestie. It was, it was an old, you know, she wasn't sort of making an issue of it. Just, just, I'm hoping needing a room. <laughs> so when you go to Ukraine, are they worried sick? Uh, yeah, or, they and were. Do, can you tell your kids stuff like that or not? Um, yeah, I did tell my wife and kids, but we had... Um, because of the security risk, obviously, we couldn't say until we were back out again that we'd been there. Um, but I did tell them and my wife, and they, you know, it is, of course, they're worried um, uh, about something like that. And it's, um, you know, it's a long old trip in, no phone or iPhone because of security, 12 hour um, train journey. We flew to the border with Poland and then got the train in. Um, and it was the most incredible humbling trip um, to go through the country um, to meet President Zelensky in um, Kiev. To be on trains that work. To be on trains, yeah. <laughs> 98% of trains in Ukraine are on time. <laughs> this is incredible. But just, just I mean, the bit that struck me, I mean, it was fantastic to be able to go and see President Zelensky and repeat the message about an incoming Labour government adopting the same position. But then I went to the outskirts um, of Kyiv, which were particularly affected by the early days of the conflict. And I had seen those images before of civilians blindfolded, with their hands tied behind their back, um, shot in the head and left in the street. But to go to the place where that happened, to see the images again, in that place, to talk to the mayor, the deputy mayor, and the communities who had to go into those streets and collect their friends, their family members, put them on carts and shopping trolleys, and bring them to the church, and then dig a mass grave um, and bury them. I was really, really profound. You, that, you had to see that, for, to talk to the people who went through that hell, um, to see the residential blocks which had been hit with families living in them, um, was incredible and humbling. But there was the real takeaway was their burning sense that they want justice, understandably, but also that they're not going to be defeated. So they go to work every day to prove that they're not going to be defeated. Every time the train, the trains, they've got 213,000 people working on the trains. There's more, better attendance now than there's ever been because they're going to work to show that they're going to keep those trains going. If they bomb the trains, they'll mend the track, they'll get the train back and it'll run on time because this is part of their war, which is we will show, you bomb our train, we'll mend it, we'll be running it, fuck off. You know, it's a very, very strong message. It's a very, very strong message. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm sure a lot of those meetings happen in private, but do you, I mean, you're a human being and a politician at the same time. It must be quite hard to remember you're a politician sometimes in places like that and to keep your composure. Yes, and sometimes you shouldn't be a politician. You should just be a human being um, and understand what that grief is like. Um, and, yeah, that's hard. Um, there are lots of emotions going on, but you are, you know, they are human beings, I'm a human being, and for people to talk through me what it was like to you know, pick up bodies in the street... That are, or, I mean, you know, the idea of blindfolding someone... These are, these are men and women, civilians, in their civilian clothes, they're, you know, on their bikes, going to work or doing whatever they're doing. And the helplessness of, of being blindfolded, hands behind your back and shot in the head. I mean, it's just... There's something in your inner human being that is so angry um, and emotional about that. And, um, and sometimes it's important just to be a human being and to be able to hug people and just show through your own actions that somehow we begin to understand what they've been through. But do you think sometimes, you know, you, oh, I shouldn't cry here, you know, I don't want to yeah. break down? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that can be hard, but, um, you know, I, I, but I think on the other hand, it is important to, to try to get across what it means. These are, you know, these are really difficult, tough times. So you meet Zelensky, and how long for? How long did you get with him? We were with him for probably about um, 45 minutes or so. Um, it's quite a long chat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he took us through what his assessment of the situation, what he wanted from the rest of the world, lots of, lots of discussion. And what's your... I mean, obviously, this is a guy currently at war. So, it's so sur- it was surreal to him in Westminster Hall because like, he's got to get back yeah, yeah. and fight a war. And it must be... You must almost feel like you're intruding on his precious time. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was here for a purpose. But it is a, an incredible thing. He was there addressing both houses of parliament. Now, he came with a mission. He wasn't just coming um, for a break. <laughs> he, came, he, he knows that they need planes and he was coming to make his case for planes, just as he previously made his case for tanks, um, etc., <laughs> But it is incredible. The other thing that was really incredible, I went to see the training that our military are doing in Salisbury for the Ukrainians. And it's a three-week training course. The military are doing a fantastic job in Salisbury. The people doing the training are civilians who are going through a three-week course and then they're going to the front line. And this, you know, I arrived um, from Parliament... um, and thinking I'd had a bit of a hard day. Um, and these I sort of said, you know, I, I was a banker three weeks ago. I was working in, in the local authority. What? Well, okay. 
And now you're so that guy did work in finance. <laughs> did he? Yeah. And, and, then, and then, you know, what are you doing next week? I'm on the front line in Donbass. It's like, whew. You know, it's really, it is humbling. It is really humbling to see what they're going through and how they're coming together to do it. I mean, it, you must get a sense when you're there. Obviously, as Brits, our media tells us that we are Ukraine's strongest ally and that Ukraine feels the same. Do you get that sense when you're with Zelensky, when you're with civilians there in Salisbury or, or in Ukraine, that there is a sense that Britain has led the way? Yeah, there is. Um, I acknowledge that. Um, they think that we move first. We were the strongest mover, and they really, really appreciate it. That is there from President Zelensky, but it's there in the communities as well. Um, the British are very welcome in Ukraine. They feel a special bond. Also, the fact that we've done refugee schemes here, etc. Um, but there is, there is genuinely a bond. Um, to be fair, I'd like to say no, but actually, it's true. And the day that you go to Ukraine, a remarkable political day. <laughs> you have this press conference, effectively, with the Equality and Human Rights Commission, who announced that they're no longer monitoring the, the Labour Party yeah. in a race. This suspect. Not a day for celebration. No reflection. And then. Nicola Sturgeon announced yeah. she resigned. I mean, you must have, is it fair to say that that was lucky for you? I mean, these are partly as a result of your political judgment, certainly the, the first one, the Equality and Human Rights Commission. But you must have thought, oh my God, I've just said Corbyn's not going to stand and now Sturgeon's gone. I mean, <laughs> you must have wondered what was going to happen by the end of the day. Yeah, it was quite a day. So, we, yeah, we started at nine o'clock with a press conference that I did on the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And, um, and that was a big moment for the Labour Party. We, you know, the, for us to have made enough progress for the Commission to say you're not in special measures. Not a day of celebration, but a day to recognise how much we've changed the Labour Party, which is unrecognisable from where we were in 2019, um, to a position now where we're fit to serve the country. That's what it's all about. It's not about me, it's not about others. It's about whether we've got a party that's fit to serve the country, that can form a government and change people's lives. Um, that, that was a big moment um, and obviously I had to be very clear about Jeremy not standing and then I, I, I got off the stage at 9.20, got on the Stansted Express at 9.40 on the way to the airport to fly to Poland um, and just as we were pulling into Stansted um, one of my staff who's travelling with me looked at her phone and said, Sturgeon's resigned <laughs> what? <laughs> and you know, what an amazing political day that was um, and Ah, it was a really, really significant day. Um, you know, say what you like about her. She's a formidable politician, and um, there isn't now anybody really to follow her. Um, and since then, people have felt free, have given licence to say, actually, you know what? The SNP government wasn't actually very good. They haven't done very much. Um, and, you know, and this is where we have to make our pitch, which is, we are a changed Labour Party. We understand why people in Scotland want change. But the change now on offer is not just who's going to be the next leader of the SNP. It's a much bigger change. You can vote Labour, you can have a Labour government, and we can change Scotland within a changed United Kingdom. We have to make that big argument about the future of our country. So it is a big, big moment for us. I was up at the Scottish... Once I got back from Ukraine, I went straight to Scotland. Um, we had our Scottish uh, Labour Party conference up there. Um, got back last night, but it was very, very good. And I was monitoring the Arsenal score on the way, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which was fantastic. <laughs> so, obviously, the, 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 the news bit from the Equalities and Human Rights Commission is the fact that Jeremy Corbyn won't be a Labour candidate at the next election. Now, um, 
that has political advantages for you, but it, it, that could be politically difficult. There's a lot of people in the Labour Party and around the left that still have a lot of respect for him who say, look, you, you don't have to punish him in this way. Is there not another way to do it? I mean, has he personally reached out to you at all? No, I haven't spoken to Jeremy since um, the evening before the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission published their report. So I phoned him, actually, the night before to say, this report is coming out um, tomorrow morning and I'm going to front it and I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to change our party. Um, and that's the last time I spoke to him. And what did he say? Uh, he didn't say very much, but obviously the next morning he said, you know, it was all exaggerated, it was all political advantage, you know, even then not acknowledging um, what it meant for the Commission to have found the Labour Party to be in breach uh, of equality laws. I mean, I, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, by the way, I think is a really good body. Uh, when I was working as a lawyer, I was a big champion. I wanted this commission. I thought it would be really good to have a powerful body that could look into organisations if they've acted in the wrong way and they haven't obeyed equality laws. I felt this is really good. Let's have it, give it even more powers. I didn't think for one minute that it would look into the Labour Party and then find the Labour Party had broken the law. And if you're the leader of the Labour Party, when that happens, you should have some shame and you should recognise um, that you don't then come out um, and say, oh, well, it's all exaggerated, it was all just political advantage. It's a serious situation. But I haven't spoken to him um, since then. Um, and, you know, luckily now, we have changed the Labour Party. The, the fight against anti-Semitism is never over. Um, but we have made progress... Um, with the Commission, and we can stand up and proudly say we've changed the Labour Party. Nobody quarrels with me on that now. Um, that, you know, they might say, you, you know, I don't agree with what you've done, but they don't say you haven't changed the Labour Party. We had to do that. You know, if, if you win, uh, if you lose as badly as we lost in 2019, you don't look at the electorate and say, well, what were you doing then? Well, yeah, what's your problem? <laughs> um, you, you, you look at your party and say, hang on, Maybe we need to look in the mirror and we need to change the Labour Party. And that's what the early years of my leadership were all about. We had to show, we recognised that we needed to change because the Labour, Part the Labour Party was formed to go into government to change lives. And we've been in opposition for 13 years. Um, in an opposition, um, you're doing nothing. You know, you, you know, we're in Parliament, we're losing every vote. People do a tweet saying, oh, I voted against this tonight. Well, fine, but it didn't make any difference because you lost. <laughs> Um, if you don't win an election, you're not changing anybody's life. Um, and that's why utter focus. We have to make the Labour Party fit to serve our country. We have to serve our country by winning an election and then bringing forward a bold, reforming, radical Labour government that will change millions of lives for the better. That's the prize, not for us, but for the millions of people who desperately, desperately need it. Is there a part of you, though, that thinks, I'm in danger here of alienating a constituency of left-wing people who might not vote Labour at the next election if they think I'm effectively punishing their hero? No, not in the slightest. It, uh, and that's why I said, we've changed the Labour Party. If you don't like it... I think you imitated this earlier. <laughs> you can leave. This is, this is not... Too many people in politics think it's all about them. It's not all about you. It's not all about um, you know, your particular pet issue. It's whether we've got a united Labour Party that can fight an election and win it for the people who desperately need us to win it. It's not about me. I didn't come into this 
to, you know, you know be leader of the Labour Party or to be Prime Minister. Um, I'm in this because I want a Labour government, and that's the single most important thing, the real focus of everything we're doing. Um, if it helps us win the election and they're difficult decisions, then we've got to take them and get on with it. No, I agree. I think the Labour Party has to be a party. <laughs> <laughs> Not just talking for itself, but facing it outwards to the country. The metropolitan <laughs> <elite>. <laughs> Is it a shit impression? <laughs> I've had worse, that's all I'd say. But, uh, <laughs> all right. That was an that open question for the room. <laughs> but you, you know, you might occasionally hear some, anyone impersonating you. Um, do you think, oh, I don't sound like that, or, oh, he's got me there? Well, you think you don't sound like that. <laughs> Um, but you but know. the material's funny. It's kind of funny. <laughs> but I mean, you've got to have the ability to laugh at yourself as well in politics. Anybody who can't laugh at themselves, I don't think is going very far. Dominic um, Rob. Well, this is. <laughs> so I mean, there's this back to talk. So when I was when I was shadow Brexit secretary, the first person I shadowed um, was David Davis, um, and you know who said all sorts of stupid things. Um, I, I like David, I confess. I do like David, I get along with him. But he said all sorts of bar. I mean, his great theory was the Germans wanted to sell their cars in the UK, therefore we'd get any deal we like. And that, that, that's why he didn't have any papers for negotiations. Just a model car made in Germany. Um, but, you know, but when I was up against him in the Commons, he sort of gently pointed out just how absurd he was and what he was saying was completely opposite of what he was saying only five minutes ago. And you sort of think you've got a really good attack, you know, and you, you said this and you're absolutely wrong. And he would, and particularly if I said a joke or was quite brutal with it, he'd just laugh. Because <laughs> he could laugh at himself and say, well, yeah. And it was quite hard. <laughs> Dominic Robb just can't laugh at himself. He can't, you know, it was just like, he can't, that, that, that sense of anything to laugh at, he can't do it. It's a really, I mean, it's a, that's why it's got the bulging veins. <laughs> But I think it's a real inhibitor. If you can't laugh at yourself, it's a real problem. Um, luckily, I've got a lot to laugh at myself. Right. <laughs> and children who are aiding and abetting me every day. Uh, just on, before we move on from Nicola Sturgeon, did you message her after she announced No, that? I didn't. Um, don't read too much into that, because we, we were by then in Poland and um, into um, Ukraine. I did put out a statement, um, uh, you know, wishing her well. And I did do a clip, um, uh, a news clip, um, where I acknowledged, you know, her conviction in leadership um, and, um, you know, that it's a big job to lead for eight years, particularly a big job for a woman. It's really tough to lead, um, and I think it is tougher for women than it is for men. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge that and to wish her well. Um, but look, you know, the SNP have run out of road. Um, they're you know, got a record that of 15 years in power, which they can't really stand on. Education's gone backwards. You've got terrible drug deaths um, in Scotland. You've got, you know, ambulances that um, the service isn't working, at, you know, at all well. They had to call in the military not long ago. Um, their record is appalling. And that's why, you know, that's why they always go to the Constitution and the independence question. They don't look there, look over here. But now they've run out of road. <coughs> I think that's a very significant um, moment, and I think we are now have to step up with humility um, and um, persuade voters who 
probably left uh, the Labour Party to vote for the SNP, that there's a, there's a better and bigger change now if you vote for a Labour Party, particularly if we can have a Labour um, administration in Westminster. Were you surprised at how quickly she resigned? Yeah, I was really... I mean, I thought it might come sometime, I don't know, the next year or two, um, but that you'd hear the rumblings of it coming. But it was very, very sudden. I, I, I don't think there's many people who claim that they could see this coming. It was very, very sudden. There are a number of things that, led to, that lead to any politician's resignation, but one of the things that really hastened her departure was self-ID yeah. and, and the gender reform laws, specifically in Scotland. Obviously, it's a UK-wide, it's, a, it's an international discussion, but just how quickly that led to her leaving. Is that a warning for, for all politicians that actually they've perhaps misunderstood the strength of feeling on the other side of the debate out there in the country? I think there is a lesson there. Um, it certainly had an impact. Whether it's the real reason she went or not, I don't know. I mean, I think if you've been at the top that long, you've toughed out quite a lot of things. I mean, she did have real issues with salmon, obviously, not long ago. So she's toughed out tough stuff. So whether, after eight years, that's the thing that pushed you over, I'm not so sure about that. But the lesson I take away from it is um, you have to bring the public with you um, if you're making an argument about change. And if you can't bring the public with you, then it's pretty obvious uh, pretty quickly um, that it'll unravel. And, and on the gender thing, it feels like, for the public, they're kind of surprised at where the debate is, and people get called transphobes, and they've never probably even thought about the debate yet. And it, 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 seems, to be, it seems to very quickly become a very poisoned arena before the public have had time to catch up with what any of this actually means for people themselves or for wider society. Do you think perhaps the political class hasn't slowed that debate down and conducted it in the proper way? I think a number of things uh, are happening. Firstly, I think uh, most people are discussing it, um, and um, it's not the number one issue or the number two, three, four, five, or even ten issue um, for them. Uh, secondly, I think it's being stoked up as a political divide, particularly by the Tories. You know, they are priding themselves that their strategy going to the next election is going to be wedge issues, woke issues, divide issues, rather than a strategy for the future of the country. Um, and so they want it to be um, a toxic fight. Um, I think that is completely wrong. I mean, a leader, particularly someone who wants to lead the country, should want to and have the ability to bring people together. Of course there's going to be differences. There's differences on so many things. But the ability of a leader is to, is to set out a strategy where we want to go with the country and to bring people together on that journey. I don't think you can um, lead by saying, we'll just divide people. We'll get people against each other as much as we can, and with a bit of luck, um, we'll get enough people to vote for us that we'll get over the line. That isn't a political strategy for the country. That's just about the survival of the Tory party. I, you know, if they go into the election with that, then we will go into the election um, with a bold offer about a reforming Labour government that is going to change our country for the better and bring people... And I look forward to the day when um, we have a Labour government that says, we, want to, we know that these two groups don't agree, but we want to bring people closer together. We want to, do the, we want to make sure that we can resolve this issue and do it in a, in a unifying way. We'll completely achieve it. But the mood will change completely. We will not be running these you know, wedge issues. And when you think about yourself, would you class yourself as woke? Uh, I, do you know what? I, I, I don't give a moment's thought to that. 
Because if I, when I go to the pub with um, people before football, and when I play... Are they football, woke? They don't even talk about it. <laughs> it's just not a... And when we go to the school, you know, do's with our kids, etc. This is just Westminster. Uh, most of the world is getting on with the job. They're worrying about, how am I going to pay my bills? What's going to happen to my um, kids? Are they going to get a decent job? Are they ever going to get a house? Um, is everybody going to go off to college and come back home because they haven't got enough money, etc., um, etc.? Et That's the discussion that we should be having across the country. And when you're uh, in the pub before, after football matches... Sounds like you spend a lot of time in the pub. Uh, or when you're just around the country, are you, do you feel like people are behaving differently towards you now? Do you think people are sort of more aware of who you are, what you stand for, but also do you think people are treating you like you could be Prime Minister? Yeah, there's been a big change, I think. Um, when I first took over, obviously, we were in lockdown, so it was quite hard to get noticed from your own bedroom on Zoom. Um, but um, over time, particularly in the last year, I think people have taken a much closer look at Labour Party. I think my strong view when I took over as leader was there was going to be three stages to what we had to do. I had to change the Labour Party, we discussed that. We had to uh, expose the government as not fit to govern. That has to take time. You can't, if you just lost badly in an election, it's quite hard to start making that argument and, in COVID. But now we're able to make it, and ably assisted by Johnson and Trust um, in that. You know, if you want evidence, Exhibit A, not fit to run the country, Johnson, Exhibit B, Trust, Exhibit C, Sunak, we're doing all right on that front. Um, but then the next bit is, and this is where it becomes important, because by and large people won't change who they vote for unless they're fed up with what they see when they are fed up with what they see, and I think people are, genuinely, I think people are fed up now, um, after 13 years, we've got nothing to show, nothing to show from this uh, administration other than a busted economy, public services that don't work, people who aren't paid enough, um, and an economy that doesn't work for anyone. Um, then they say, well, what's the alternative? And at that point, the, you know, if you think of a lighthouse, the beam of the lighthouse comes around and shines very intensely on the opposition. Um, it did that at our conference last year, and we were able to show a confident uh, Labour Party that um, had changed and had answers to the big challenges of the day. And that has made people look at us differently now. And so when I go around the country, I'm much more recognised, people want to engage. Um, we have business conferences where everybody wants to be there. There's a sense um, that change is in the air. And now, we can't be complacent because plenty of oppositions have done well you know, before an election, but then it hasn't happened. So we must keep intensely um, focused. But, you know, we're getting there. Even, even when I was in Edinburgh this weekend, um, a taxi pulled out from the station and, and the guy driving it just leant out the window and went, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> this is good. So up to one vote in Scotland. I mean, one vote. <laughs> oh, vote by vote. <laughs> in for the no complacency. It's amazing growth. But do you... Um... There's quite a lot of Tories who are saying, look, I, I, I used to vote Tory, but I'm not used to business people yeah. saying yeah. I'm not going with them. People are really... They, they have delivered nothing for them. I mean, it, it, do you remember towards the end of the Labour government, there's a clip of Gordon Brown doing um, the conference speech, I think it was, and he lists all the things Labour government did. He goes from side to side. We did this, short stuff. We did that, equality. We did non-discrimination. Best of it, Ian. Best of it, GCSE. Best of it, Ian. Yeah, but he did... But he did about 30 things. <laughs> we did this, we did that, we did that, da-da-da-da-da. What is the Tory equivalent of that? We busted the economy, 
We've ruined your public services. We told you porkies. You're worse <laughs> off. You know, please vote for us again. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I mean, it, there must be part of you as a Labour person that thinks you can never write the Tory party off as an opponent. No. No. And do, do, does that... Is it, I sometimes feel like watching Labour leaders is like watching England teams going to major tournaments. You're like... <laughs> ah, I've been there so often. <laughs> it's like a... You're like, I think they're good enough. Yeah. But we're about to find out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> does it, do you feel that sort of sense of oh, pressure? Oh, don't bring back the agony. God. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, so I was uh, in Wembley in 96 when Gascoigne missed that goal by a stud's length. We were all singing football's coming home and it was just like heartbreaking. Yeah. And then we went and did it again, obviously. Uh, in, but the, the, although on that theme, I mean, the women's team were fantastic. So we, you've been going on about bringing this thing home. Yeah. But you obviously haven't got around to it, so we'll just go and get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, which is why we got Rachel Rees and Yvette Cooper and Bridget Phillips and such strong women in the shadow cabinet. Yeah. It's like, you know, they're going to bring this home for us. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Then it will take a female to it will take a woman to win a general election for Labour. Is that we got? <laughs> I hope not. We've got very, very. I've got amazingly strong women around me. They're fantastic. Really. I mean, Ange Rayner. You had Ange on. You had Rachel on. You've had oh my God. I mean, Angela Rayner. <laughs> what a character. Yes, she's great. <laughs> but very, you know, you and Rachel feel like sort of you're from the same sort of political style, whereas you know Angela's. In a world of her own, isn't she? In a, in a, in a, I mean, it feels... You two feel like a real contrast in terms of personality. Yeah, but we really get on. It's really... In, I mean, Angela's uh, thing is, she says of herself, I overshare, and Keir undershares, and that's about right. But what's fantastic about it is... And I'm not pretending we agree on everything, but um, whenever my back's against the wall, Angela will get in touch, will she be there, absolute sporting. When she, she's had some difficulties with you know, the medical issues around her kids and that sort of thing. There's a real, you know, I'm there for you, um, which is a sign of a deep friendship. Um, and deep friends can disagree on various things, but Angela's a fantastic, really, really fantastic woman, brings a huge amount together. Her whole backstory is incredible, um, that she's deputy leader of the Labour Party, and I hope deputy prime minister before too long. Really incredible journey, and she's got political antennae, um, and it's fantastic. And just thinking about the public reaction to you and some of the other people around you, I mean, we always hit, you know what I'm always fascinated by when you go, uh, the Labour Party's getting private polling or whatever. And, and, and when you see like focus group stuff or polling, is it different to the stuff the rest of us see? Or are you privy to like extra levels of insight? Um, it's, in terms of headlines, it's often fairly similar. But what we're looking for is the detail. Where is this vote? Because. Um, I've got a list of the constituencies we have to win to win the next general election. I carry it with me to keep me focused. And so it must we, be a long list. It is a lot. <laughs> it's a very, very long list. We lost very, we, we, we lost very, very badly. I mean, you know, if we take the Labour Party from that loss back into government, that will be an, an incredible achievement. And that's why I say to the Shadow keep, Cabinet, keep your feet on the ground. The size of this task is massive. Don't get complacent. Don't get ahead of yourself. Fight like you're five points behind all of the time. But what we're looking for in that polling is, where's the evidence that uh, things are shifting? And last year's, we've got the local elections in May of this year. We had a set last year. And normally with local elections, you measure, because they're every four years for the particular borough or whatever it may be, um, you normally measure, are we better or worse than the last four years? I said, I don't, I'm interested in that, but I'm really interested in 
what does this tell us about the underlying constituencies behind these boroughs? And what happened last year was I got the first evidence that those that voted Tory for the first time, Labour voters, in 2019, were beginning to switch back to Labour. That was a big moment because I didn't know how long it would take for people to begin to vote Labour again. And we got not, not enough... Um, you know, too many still in a sort of holding position. Got to do a lot more work to um, persuade people. But the beginnings of the evidence that people who went away from us in 2019 are coming back. Not in enough numbers yet, but are coming back. And that was a really important piece of evidence. So it's that sort of thing that I'm looking for um, to give us um, reassurance that we're on the right path. And with focus groups and things... Often they'll ask, oh, if a politician was a car, or if a politician was an animal, or a food. I mean, do, do, you, do you read that stuff, or do your teams say, oh, don't show them that stuff? Well, so we've been doing quite a lot of polling, quite a lot of focus group stuff. I've never actually, um, until recently, watched any of the um, focus groups. You watched? Um, but I did watch one the other day. Um, and, um, and it was a real insight into how people go about, you know, um, analysing a problem, analysing a person... <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I took a, poured a large glass of white wine when I started, and they started saying, what do you think of Keir Starring? <laughs> so hang on, so you're, like, it's a piece of one-way glass? It, the, the, some of these are on um, Zoom. Okay. And, and you're watching it live? Yeah. And what did they say about you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> various things. <laughs> but one, there was this, um, there was this moment where, um, one uh, woman said, well, he's a bit like David Beckham. I said, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the team had said to me, brace yourself here. It's gonna be you know, and then she said, you know, until he says Metropolitan Police. <laughs> <laughs> Did she say that? No. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thought I'd cut through it. Um, so in what way did she mean you were like David Beckham? I, well, I, it was... The hair? I don't... I, I think... You know, because he's fit. Because he's fit. <laughs> but does she mean that like you're a national leader, or does she mean, you know, you and Rebecca Lewis have had it off? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't get to ask this. It was, it was, it was, it was a real because as I said, I've never actually watched one of these before. So. And then, did you feel yourself at the end or not? No. <laughs> so you don't go. Hang on a minute. Hang on. Yeah, that's bullshit. Hang on. What you said. <laughs> Well, so those people have no idea that you were lurking. Yeah. <laughs> and did you, was it actually reassuring for you then? Would you do it again, that sort of thing? I, I, I think focus groups have their purpose, but we shouldn't be led. I mean, that's, that's where you test what's going on, see what the, where the position is. But the ideas we've got have got to come politically from us um, as a party with a strategic plan for the future. Um, and that's what we're working on. And that, you know, you can, you can poll all you like, you can focus group all you like. In the end, you've got to have a sense of a strategy for the country that sits above that. Um, all you use focus groups for really is to test whether um, some of the language is working, etc., etc. And when, when you think about your own leadership style, do you... You've been very ruthless, but in a kind of subtle unshowy way when you think about dealing with Jeremy Corbyn or maybe even like refreshing your own team and things like that and you've done this all very quickly is that a deliberate choice is it a reflection of your character I mean I you know a lot of people from the new labor school would say you have to really make a song and dance about visibly changing the party having a clause for moment 
It feels like you've, you've, you've made a noise, but you've done it perhaps in your own way. Yeah, I mean, this is um, my approach to politics. I mean, I came into it later in my life, and therefore I've had experience of um, doing difficult things outside of politics. Um, and there are tough things you have to do outside of politics. You know, I did a lot of work on the death penalty, trying to eradicate it in the Caribbean and countries in um, Africa. And that meant, you know, sitting in a cell with someone who was going to be hung, uh, talking about their case, and knowing that if we got the argument right, that person would live, and if we got it wrong, they would die. Th these are tough things that I've had to do running the Crown Prosecution Service. We had to take really tough decisions about what we're going to do. So tough decisions aren't difficult or something that you know, um, I'm afraid of. But the way I do politics is different because um, I've come across too many people who very articulately describe a problem. This is terrible. They're very, very eloquent. And you say, wow, what a fantastic politician. What are you going to do about it? Oh, it's terrible. Uh, but let's talk about it even more. <laughs> people who, you know, go on and on and on about how bad the problem is. Let's come back to it. Let's talk about it. And people think that's brilliant politics, that you're describing a problem. I want to fix it. Um, and therefore, I'm much more interested in getting on with the job of fixing it. So if we've had to do ruthless, difficult, tough things, which we have, let's just do it. Let's get on with it. Um, rather than, you know, doing a great drama about it and pretending that that is real politics. Talking about a problem eloquently but not fixing it is not politics for me. And that's not, I, I didn't come in to you know, um, describe problems. I came in to fix problems because if we don't fix them, we're going nowhere. And one of my frustrations the last 13 years is that the fundamentals haven't been addressed. You know, our public services haven't been reformed. Our economy hasn't been grown. And, and the government has, I, I call it sticking plaster politics, but um, all they do is try to fix the immediate crisis. They don't actually do any long-term work. The NHS has been in a winter crisis for 13 years. The only thing is, every year it gets worse. And when it just about is to topple over, there's a sticking plaster that keeps it going until the spring, then we have a breather in the summer, then we go straight back into it. Um, nobody's doing the fundamentals of fixing it. Same on energy. Um, we've known that we needed um, renewable energy for 10 years. We could have got on with insulating our homes. We could have got on with running towards renewables um, so that we had energy produced in this country with, in, you know, with lower bills, with security, not having to be, uh, not allowing Putin to put his foot on our throat. Really good jobs of the future and doing what we need to do for climate change. And we haven't done any of it. Um, and now we're doing sticking plaster. The, the stuff about um, freezing energy bills with windfall tax, that's sticking plaster. That's only going to last until the next time the bills go up. We need to do the fundamentals. And so, I mean, long answer to your question, but I'm not that interested in an eloquent debate about what the problem is. Um, and I'm not, I don't describe politicians as brilliant because they're very eloquent in describing a problem. I'm very drawn to people in life who recognise what the problem is, do the analysis, and then say, this is how we're going to fix it. On Thursday, your... Uh You're going to announce five missions. Sort of, I guess these are five policy areas and things. Can you... I mean, I know it's late Monday. Um, <laughs> can you give us a sense of what those five <laughs> missions are and what it will mean? Look, Matt, if I do that, I'm going to deprive you of your Thursday morning, which I know you've already booked out, <laughs> to watch me give the speech. And I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> um, but it will be, it'll be a very serious 
um, speech, which will set out um, what we intend to achieve in government, but importantly also how we're going to achieve it. Um, and that will be the substance of what I'm going to set out um, on Thursday. It is, it's an extension of the discussion that we've just had about how you um, deal with the underlying fundamentals. I mean, all, all Labour the Labour Party doesn't actually win elections very often. Um, we've won big in 1945, in 1964 and 1997, and that's it. But every time we've done it, we've done it because we've owned the future. We've said, this doesn't work, it could be better. You know, a country fit for heroes in 1945. We can make this better, there's a better future there, um, and we've got a plan to actually make it work. The NHS, the welfare state, you name it, NATO. Um, 1964, the white heat of technology, the, the world is moving on, technology is going to be the future, and we, the Labour Party, the owners of the future. 1997, you know, a country held back because its institutions aren't working, and we hadn't modernised, we're the future. We've got to do this again, I hope, for the fourth time in the history of the Labour Party. Um, and that's about owning the future, saying what we're going to do, how we're going to change the country, um, and what the ambition is for probably a 10-year term, to be honest, because we're not going to be able to do this all in five years. And I want, you know, I want, the, I want 2024 to be up there in light so that next time others have a discussion about the, the history of the Labour Party, say 1945, 64, 97 and 2024. <laughs> So it's all like future-facing stuff. Yeah. It's like hoverboards. Uh, <laughs> what other stuff? What? Northern Rail. Northern Rail. Well, I think you were giving away half the policies earlier, doing about dog fouling, fly tipping. You know? Yes. <laughs> so that sort of stuff. The big missions. But will, will, it, will they fall into like health, education, crime, the economy? There will be big issues, yeah. But yeah. there will be a lot of what does it mean um, to... Um, have a purpose-led government with a real focus. And, and that's really important, by the way, because you know, events get in the way, you get knocked off course. At the moment, it feels like we've got a government that is a ship or a boat and the, and the engines have been turned off. And it's just drifting. It's going wherever the tide or the wind... Got a great bar, though. Yeah, got a great bar. <laughs> um, but we, we, need, we need absolute... You know, If people think that in the three years I've been leader of the Labour Party, we've been intensely focused on what we've got to do... Um, which we have uh, with a sort of three-stage plan, then you ain't seen nothing yet in the way that we will run the government um, properly, with integrity, uh, with fairness, with openness, with accountability, um, to transform our country and transform the lives of millions of people who desperately, desperately need it. And are you... Obviously, you, you're reaching a point now where the election is on the horizon. It's closer than it would have been when you first became leader. Are you, do you have a plan for how much detail you can show people? Because the danger is if you announce policy too soon, it either gets stolen by the government or shot down. Yeah. Like this, 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 the windfall tax is an example of that. We said it should be a windfall tax. The government said, that's a silly idea. And then six months later, they nicked it. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're welcome to do that, by the way, because we do need these things to change. But, um, you know, I think the big um, sort of, Framework has to be set out. The detail will come when we get closer to the election. And is there any part of you that thinks, what if they catch us on the hoof? What if Rishi Sunak says, actually, we're going to go in May this year because we don't think Labour have done all their homework yet and I'd rather lose fewer seats? Uh, yeah, we have to game that the whole time. Um, 
when I saw what was happening um, with Liz Truss and the Tory party in the autumn of last year, I said to our team, they could go at any time, um, either because they just collapse or they're desperate or they're trying to sort of gamble it. Um, and so I moved our party onto an election footing in September last year. So we merged our teams, um, we changed the way our staff are structured, um, and we drafted enough to be able to... I, need, I said I need confidence that we could have a manifesto within 14 days of any election being called. So I've already put us into that position um, and selecting our candidates, etc. Because, you know, I think it's unlikely this year, but, you know... <laughs> Who knows uh, where they're going to go? I mean, you know, when you've been through, you know, three prime ministers and four chancellors <laughs> in the in the last calendar year, you've got to be prepared yeah. <laughs> for the unexpected. And when it, when and the, by the way, this is really bad for our country. I mean, we need, we desperately need international investment into this country so we can do the big projects that we need to do. Most investors are looking at this country, and we think it's a bit of a political joke to have three prime ministers, four chancellors, four budgets. For them, they're just thinking, well, we're not putting our money there for a while. Um, there's no stability. It's a, I mean, the, the damage they've done to our international reputation is profound, and it's going to take a lot of undoing. When you think about the next election and the pressures that will be on the party, but you as an individual... I mean, do you have, a, have you decided yet you would definitely do one-on-one -on -one TV debates with Rishi Sunak? No, we haven't got into that. I mean, I, I'm sure there will be debates. Um, exactly what form they'll talk, take, I don't know. I, I imagine there will be one-on-one -on -one interviews, uh, uh, debates, um, and probably quite a number of them. Um, but um, as to exactly what format they'll be, they'll be fought out as we go into the election. But, I mean, you've but bring it on, yeah. in a sense. I, I want to have that discussion. I want to ask people, yeah. you, you know... You've got a choice here. Got 13 years of managed decline, um, and or, or, or do you want to continue with that, or do you want change with an incoming purpose-led Labour government that's going to change this country for the better? Let's bring that debate on any day of the week. OK, we've got a bit of time just for a couple of quick audience questions. I don't have a roving mic, so if I can ask for one-sentence questions, one-sentence answers, and I will have to repeat the question, I'm afraid. Um, so, uh, if you indicate very clearly... Yes, right in the middle there. Um, you've got other Tories who uh, have admitted to doing illegal drugs. You yourself have admitted to having fun while you were young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other drug reform or decriminalisation in the Labour government? Any... Um, would you decriminalise any drugs, or um, have, you, have you done any? <laughs> <laughs> Very first time I did an event with Maddie, tried this one. <laughs> I think I asked you if you had any on you. That was, the... <laughs> <laughs> that was when we came on, yeah. Uh, uh, on the question of decriminalisation, look, I don't think we should decriminalise um, drugs. Uh, you know, I've seen firsthand the damage that drug-taking... Um, has and does to people's lives. Go to um, uh, Glasgow and see what's happening with the drug deaths up there. So, no, um, we're not um, in the business of decriminalising drugs. OK. Um, just down here, yeah. Hiya. Um, so you mentioned 2024 will hopefully be a big year for you in the Labour Party. If you could draw upon the qualities of any former Prime Minister, <laughs> alive or not... Which Prime Minister and what qualities would they be? So if you could draw the qualities of any Prime Minister, living or not, what qualities would you draw on and why would it be Tony Blair? Yeah. 
in all my in all the speeches I think I've pretty well that I've done, I've always um, uh, referenced um, Atlee, Wilson and Blair. Um, and when I first did it, people said, why did you reference that only them? I said, because they won and everybody else did. Um, and that's really, really important. And so I would draw on all of them. The common theme is this ability to glimpse the future and to say there's a better future and this is how a Labour government is going to get you there. That is the common theme. Obviously, um, I talked to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown because, um, intensely, because they were the last um, leaders to take the Labour Party from opposition into power. Um, and I'm interested in talking to anybody who's had that experience so that I can understand it and learn from it. Um, now, I'm not in the business of winding the clock back. We can't just redo um, 94 to 97. The issues are completely different. But the mindset is important. How do you take a party that's been out of power for a very, very long time um, and prepare it for power um, so that it can actually go on and win an election. I'm very interested in that discussion because it's my responsibility, and it's a heavy responsibility, to take our party on that journey again. And so that's why I talk to um, Tony and to Gordon and to others who've got that experience. There aren't many living people who've had that experience, and it's very important that um, I understand it. As a mindset, Not a, I'm not interested in... Um, you know, saying, well, what policies would you put in place or anything? That's not the discussion. It is, how do you prepare a party um, to go from opposition into power? Because that's, that's, that's my absolutely sole aim in all of this. And it's genuinely not about me. It's not whether I'm standing outside number 10. It's whether our party can serve our country um, and win that general election. Uh, the last time you were seen with Tony Blair was at Davos. Yeah. What, I, what did he say? I told you it was great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I saw him there. I, I mean, I talked to him quite a bit, talked to Gordon Brown quite a bit. Um, in da- I mean, he, he's been going to Davos for a long time. I was my first experience um, of Davos. It's an extraordinary um, experience because it's high up in the hills in Switzerland, you know, miles from the nearest airport in the freezing cold and snow. And you've got all these sort of global leaders coming together. But it was, that was very struck by two or three things. The first is really sad. Um, a sense that the UK is no longer present on the international stage, uh, that has drifted away from the international stage. Um, and a sense, and they were, you know, people really like the UK, they respect the UK. And the fact that the UK has drifted away from any kind of global leadership, any um, place on the international stage, is a, is a real sadness. Uh, and I don't care which political party people support, by the way. You should never want your country um, to be diminished on the global stage. The second thing was, there was a sense... Um, we, we went with the statement of intent, which was, if there's a Labour government, we're going to turn this around. We're going to be on the global stage. We're going to be leading when it comes to climate change, on security, on rebuilding economies across the country, and making sure we can take the whole world with us. And that statement of intent, that we would be back on the stage, the UK would be back in the place I believe it should be, which is leading the debate, finding the solutions across the globe, that was really, really well received. Uh, all the questions so far have been from men. So, uh, any, yes, a uh, woman down here. Me? Um, yes. Yes. How will you get uh, Scotland to vote for Labour again? And are you Scottish? I'm from Glasgow. You're from Glasgow? Uh, so, 
How would you get Scotland to vote Labour again? And are you, are you, are you currently pro-Labour or have you been in the past? I've always been pro-Labour. Always been pro-Labour? I've never taken drugs. You've never taken drugs? <laughs> <laughs> you're sure you're from Glasgow? <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there a correlation there? <laughs> Oh, Glasgow's yeah. an amazing place. No, it really is. Um, uh, on Scotland, I mean, it is vital that we win votes in Scotland um, because the road to a Labour victory runs through Scotland. Um, and also, if I'm Prime Minister, I want to be Prime Minister for the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, I don't want us to win on the back of English-only constituencies and want us to be able to represent Scotland. It's this sense of bringing um, the United Kingdom, the four nations together. In order, and I think your question is really, really profound because um, we need to persuade people who voted SNP lately that the change um, that they can now vote for is the Labour Party. And we have to be humble about that. Um, I don't think we should break up the United Kingdom. I don't, if you look at climate change, the energy crisis, Putin and the conflict, um, cost of living crisis. I don't think you can solve that by putting barriers up um, between our countries. But I don't think we can trade on our past. We can't simply say, well, the union, in the union we've done great things. We have to make the argument about the future. And we have to recognise why people want change. We can't say to people who voted SNP um, and have thought that the way out of the UK as the way forward. I can't say you're just wrong, now you can see the light. I have to understand that's a genuine feeling that they've had about the way forward. And they've got a point, because politics hasn't worked for them. Um, and therefore, they're driven to the argument that the way forward is the way out. We have to, in you know, humility, understand that argument and say that, that we can have change, we can have bold change, um, and you can do that with a Labour government. Um, but you're not going to do it with an SNP that's run out of road. So it's a very important question for us to answer. But um, we, ha we have to approach that in a very, very humble way, knowing that we have to earn those votes back if we're to own, own them. There's no, there's no rule of politics that says, because the SNP is now in a mess and Nicola Sturgeon's gone, that there's a degree of disorientation and disaffection and therefore it necessarily translates into a Labour vote. That is not true. We're going to have to, I hope it translates into a Labour vote, but we've got to earn it in the same way that we've got to earn all the votes that left us in 2019 and all the votes that left us you know, in 2017, 2015 and 2010. Um, and that is by really understanding um, what people are up against, understanding their ambition for themselves, their family, their community, and bringing up a government that is alongside them in that ambition, and whether it's Scotland or anywhere else. I've not met many people, many families, many communities who don't have huge aspiration um, and ambition for themselves. They want change, they drive change, they're desperate for change. Um, and what they don't see is a government that shares their ambition and is determined to, to deliver that change with them. And I think that that's the mindset that we have to take in um, Scotland. It was my main message at the Scottish conference um, this weekend about how we do politics in Scotland, which is a reflection of how I do politics more generally, which is um, genuinely understanding the change and the ambitions and the aspirations people have and bringing up the Labour Party, Labour government, I hope, up alongside these people 
um, so that together we can make that change. Um, and I think that's the only way we will win in Scotland. We can't trade on our history. I mean, a lot, Many people in Scotland don't remember a time before devolution. So it's no good me just saying, well, Labour Party gave you devolution, surely you can vote for us. It's like we've never known anything else. Um, we, we, we will, oh, this is about, this is back to 45, 64, 97. You've got to own the future. You can't trade on your past. And so we have to make the positive case for a changed and better Scotland in a changed and better United Kingdom. <laughs> well, thank you very much for the, uh, the, the audience questions. Keir, um, if, well, okay, the final question. What, what, what do you think is most likely? Arsenal win the Premier League <laughs> or, or Labour win the next election? Well, I, I know I'm not allowed to say both. Um, a Labour... <laughs> the more important is Labour victory, however much I want Arsenal to win. We've got to win that election. Uh, maybe, just maybe, we'll get both. I mean, they're a really... They're a brilliant team, the Arsenal team. At the moment. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm totally biased. I, I accept that. I'm a season ticket holder. I go as often as I can to home games with some of the people in this uh, crowd. Um, and um, uh, that, I haven't seen a team that good for a long time. And we, after the match, we always go back to the pub and have a debrief on, you know, and there's the inevitable question, who was the best player of the game and all the rest of it. And very often it's quite hard to say because the team is so good. Um, that they're all doing their bit. And there's some lessons there, I think. Yes. <laughs> For the shadow cabinet and hopefully one day the cabinet. Do you... Uh, do you uh, when you watch football, you, you, do you contain yourself? Do you ever hurl abuse? Do you ever sort of scream out? Uh, I, I find it very hard to contain myself. I've been playing football since I was 10 years old, um, every week. I've played much of football, often too much of football. But going to football, go to the Arsenal... Um, and it's a big passion for me. It's, it's a hugely important part of my life. I just love it. There's no replacement for that um, moment when you know, a goal goes in. And all these different people that are just sort of heads around the stadium all go up at the same time. There's an emotion that rushes through the bodies of thousands and thousands of people at the same time, sharing a moment which is incredible in football. What I have had to do in the last couple of years is rein that in a bit. <laughs> uh, because everyone has got a mobile phone now, so the, uh, the referees are whatever. Um, and when we first went with my um, kids, um, I was a bit worried about the language and the, uh, our little boy, I think, I think when he was six or seven. And at the time, uh, one of the chancellors, we've got a big fucking German. So I had, to, I had to persuade all the people who sit around us in our part of the stand to say fuzzy. Um, very loudly when my little boy was there so he didn't run and then um, then uh, suddenly a few weeks after that Mourinho was on the touchline and there was no disguising what was being said there and then when I took my little girl it was um, the referees or whatever um, and they loved it but for me I just have to be <laughs> oh, the, the delight in our little girl when I uh, remember uh, someone in the crowd sort of took their top off and so it was topless, blue coat, which is pretty, not the best sight in the world, but sh uh, with his shirt like this, running up and down with his top off. She thought that was absolutely fantastic. Crazy that it was her dad. <laughs> uh, no, she, so she, she says to me, no, I don't know why you're shouting, they can't hear you. <laughs> Because I'm also doing the pointing, like, you know, put it over there. <laughs> what, what are you doing? 
You lunatic. <laughs> she sounds very rational. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she could be the next prime. Yeah, next prime minister, but one moment. Um, so, Keir, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, before um, we let Keir go, give yourselves a round of applause for being such an amazing audience. Oh. Before I let you go, just one very quick question. <laughs> if you do become Prime Minister, will you come back on the podcast? Yes, definitely. There you go. There you go. Pledge. Keir, this has been a, a, a real treat. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been a real treat. It really has. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Keir Starmer. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. And thank you to all of you who came. It was a very special atmosphere in there, in a packed Duchess Theatre. And you could really feel the electricity. You know, certain guests have that command over an audience. And, and you could really feel that in the room. Um, so uh, I'm very grateful to Kia for coming, for being such a great guest. To all of you for coming, to you for downloading this. Uh, please do leave a five-star written review as it helps the podcast get the chance. Tell your friends about it. And come to a future show at the Duchess Theatre. The link is in the blurb and my next guest on the 6th of March Eddie Izzard and then on the 20th of March Krishnan Guru Murthy on the 3rd of April Ruth Davidson on the 22nd of May David Blunkett and more to be announced thank you so much for downloading this I hope you've enjoyed it I'll see you next time ta Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.